0: Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host John Kingston. We're wrapping up 2023 today with our traditional end-of-year interview with Scopolitas Transportation Consulting. P. Sean Garney is going to be here to speak about what he sees coming up on the regulatory landscape in Washington in the next year. As usual, there's plenty going on. I think when I look over the diesel market in this past year, that what sticks out are the margins. Yes, we can talk about how the, pri- the outright price rose sharply and then fell, but let's face it, you can hear about that in a lot of places. Here, given the freightways audience, we're going to talk about diesel. The margin is quite simply the difference between the price of crude and the price of diesel, or the price of crude and the price of gasoline. In some ways, you can almost view 2023 as the first normal year since 2019. That may sound strange. 2020 obviously wasn't normal, and there still was a COVID hangover in 2021. In 2022, you had the Russian invasion of Ukraine that blew markets out of any sort of normalcy, though that eventually mostly receded. And so, yes, this year you had the war in the Middle East, but that affected exactly zero oil production, though I do need to note here that as I'm recording this, oil transit is skipping the Suez Canal and that is certainly adding as much as two-weeks transit time, and that could be a bullish factor for oil. With the chaos in the market all these years, it was always hard to figure out just what was the price impact of IMO 2020. You remember that rule. It is the regulation that went into effect in 2020, naturally, and it requires much stricter sulfur limits in marine fuels. The primary method of getting to that was going to be the creation of a new product, called very low sulfur fuel oil. And the way to make that VLSFO, as it's known, was to take distillate molecules that would otherwise go into the manufacture of diesel or other distillate products like heating oil and instead make VLSFO. You can see where this might have been concerning in terms of driving up the price of diesel. I wrote several stories for Freightways in 2019 about the impending change and when it might hit diesel markets. And in the fall of 2019, there were some signals in the diesel market that maybe the spread between crude and diesel was starting to expand and that IMO 2020 was the likely culprit. Of course, when 2020 hit, we know what happened. Outside of toilet paper, we were suddenly awash with everything. Least of all, more, least of all I say most of all, oil. That raised the question uh, with, that, with the diesel spread never blowing out, was that because of COVID, or was it because the concerns about IMO 2020 were all false? We're about to close the books on a year that I think could be described, as I said, as somewhat normal. Okay, it was volatile, but oil is always volatile. And what do the markets show? If you take a basic spread between crude and ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME, the CME Commodities Exchange, that spread in, ni- in 2019 averaged about 41 cents per gallon. In 2002, when diesel was certainly considered elevated by the fact that a major supplier, Russia, was shut out of a lot of markets during the year, that spread averaged about $1.18 per gallon. This year, that spread so far has averaged about $0.85 per gallon. Its highest spread was about $1.20, in other words, a level about equal to last year's average. I am sort of ready to declare this year the new norm. Did IMO 2020 finally work its way so thoroughly through the market that it has doubled diesel's average spread against crude? This matters to users, because it means that the fuel that drives the transportation sector is now going to be permanently elevated relative to crude, and there's no reason to believe that other costs are necessarily going to follow suit. Diesel has the capability of being more, relatively more expensive than anything else. What can fix this? Maybe nothing. Maybe more refining capacity. The world is anticipating the opening in 2024 of the Dangote refinery in Nigeria. It is an absolute giant at 650,000 barrels per day. But in particular, it is aimed at producing lots of gasoline, so that while, while there may be new diesel capacity, it isn't enormous. There are other refinery projects expected to see the light of day in 2022, but Dangote is the biggest. What this means is that, you know how people will look at the prices on the corner station and say, man, can you believe how much more expensive diesel is than gasoline? I remember when it used to be the other way around. Yes, that is true. And you know what? It's not likely to go back. It has become a tradition here on Drilling Deep that we wrap up the year with Scopolitas Consulting and talk to them about their views on the coming year and maybe what happened this prior year that just is wrapping up. It used to be Dave Ocecki who would visit with us, and now it's P. Sean Garney. He's the co-director at Scope Leaders Transportation Consulting, and we just kind of like to sort of spin the globe, or spin the wheel with him at this time of the year, and uh we'll spin the steering wheel, actually. I guess, Sean, is the best way to say it, right? Yeah, I guess so. So anyway, thanks for joining us here on Drilling Deep. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the end of 2023 and going into 2024. What do you think was the biggest story in 2023, at least from like your perspective? You're down there in Washington. What was the biggest sort of regulatory issue that you saw brewing in 2023 that presumably is going to spill over into next year?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, John. I mean, I think the story that got the most traction through the year and perhaps produced, you know, a fair amount of anxiety was the, the spattering of news on speed limiters. And the sort of second AMPRM that were or the yeah, the second supplemental notice that we got and the upcoming notice that we're expecting as a potential Christmas gift, air quotes, gift to the industry um, here at the end of the year. I think that was probably what got some of the most traction or some of the most anxiety in the in the industry. The one thing that I thought was probably one of the bigger deals throughout the year was the Valentine's day gift that we got this year in 2023, which was FMCSA's proposed changes to the CSA program. I think those will have some pretty long legs, too.
0: All right, let's go back to the speed limit. Now, This is not legislation we're talking about. This would be a an FMCSA rule, correct?
1: Correct, though there's been a lot of talk on the Hill about it, too. So that's what's making it such a high visibility issue. FMCSA is expected to finally uh, sometime sooner, maybe early in the new year, expected to finally give us their proposal, a notice of proposed rulemaking that is supposed to outline what speed, the speed at which they think, um, commercial motor vehicles should be traveling. And there's just a lot of anxiety in the industry, uh, much of who don't want any speed to be stipulated at all. Um, just waiting for this to sort of come down. It, it has become less of an issue, I think, about, um, you know how fast our trucks should drive, and more of an issue about the length of government oversight or the the weight of government oversight, and and what's appropriate. So it's sort of becoming this proxy argument for, I think, a, a larger discussion.
0: Right, as you as you as you noted, um, there there is there, there's a good chunk of people out there who want zero limit on this. Um, do you, is there a number? and it's not because they want to drive
1: fast too. Well, well I, know. Say I know that. I that You know
0: they they don't want to drive fast. They're just sick of
1: having to you know worry about this mandate and that mandate and that's frustrating
0: okay what what is the i mean there's no number yet there's no proposal yet we don't know what it is from what you guess from what you gather where do you think that number might come in at
1: (laughs) 68 good sir i think 68 um you know there was the, the rumors that that fmcsa had uh had made an error when updating their their unified agenda had included 68 in there. And then there were all these stories about, oh, we know the speed, it's going to be 68, it's going to be 68. And then, of course, FMCSA walked it back and many of the other advocates in the space were like, hey, for sure, we don't know what the speed's going to be. Um, I do think 68 is a reasonable spot if they have to pick one. You know, it's higher than 65. I live out here in the Midwest, and the speed limit in South Dakota is 80 on the expressway, and many of the the interstates around here have higher limits. So it's going to have to be, I think, higher than 65. 70 people start to get a little scary, so or a little scared. We'll see if they end up wanting to bifurcate it in a way that the American Trucking Associations had called for, which would give you a slightly higher top speed if you employ. Uh, these types of technologies, I personally don't think that that is something they'll necessarily consider because it will, um, just by virtue of the nature of the rule, advantage larger carriers over smaller carriers. And I don't think Apple CSA is interested in doing that. Um So if you wanted some unfounded prognostication, John, for your podcast, uh Sean Garney says 68.
0: Now, how does this advantage bigger carriers i mean in the sense of re- in, you know, regulation i don't care what industry it's in regulation always helps the big boys because they are more financially stable more financially solid to handle the cost of the regulation but specifics what are some of the ways in which larger carriers could benefit from this and i think it's significant because you know you could imagine a move on the part of larger carriers to start advocating for this because they see that it's maybe an advantage over their smaller uh, smaller competitors
1: You know, the competitive landscape on the the speed limiter issue is very interesting. I mean, if you think if, if FMCSA would choose to say, hey, if I've got, you know, this adaptive cruise control technology on my truck or whatever the case may be, then I may drive faster. You know, that technology comes with a cost, a cost that not all players in the marketplace can bear. And so if now all of a sudden I get two extra miles per hour, you know, that, that's a big deal. Of, of course, in the very beginning, when, you know, larger carriers began adopting on their own accord, these speed limiters, they were doing that for cost control considerations, right? They wanted to make sure that, um, that they could have the most optimal miles per gallon from a fuel spend perspective and um, started to see the safety benefits and started to encourage the rest of the industry to sort of, consider and adopt those. Um, of course, the smaller motor carriers, um, they don't have the, those economies of scale, right? They don't have the ability to change their routes or assign new trucks. You know, when they pick up a load, they have to pick up a load. They have to, you know, they have to deliver it on time. And so for them, those extra few miles per gallon or those extra few miles per hour could make the difference between getting their next load or not. And if they don't get their next load, now they're out searching again. Whereas, you know, larger carriers tend to have larger networks and can re-inside trucks and drivers and, and can absorb that sort of impact a little bit better. So there's there's definitely competitive element happening here on Speedlivers.
0: You know, kind of on a personal side, uh, me and my prior employer uh, who had a pretty big T&E budget, uh, I used to get a private car to the airport and I used to travel quite a bit. And I always noticed that, and it was his car, co- it was his car, it was his company, always noticed that he was fairly moderate in how fast he he, he could go, even when he'd take me to the airport at some ungodly hour or pick me (laughs) up from it at some ungodly hour. and The roads were fairly wide open. He Mm -hmm. would moderate his speed. I've noticed since I've gone over to Uber as my way of transporting to the airport that a lot of them just drive hell-bent. You know, they want to get there as fast as possible. And maybe they could argue with you that by getting one route done, it puts them in position to sooner claim another route. So it's a really interesting calculation.
1: Yeah, I mean they're under very similar pressures. They need turns, you know. That's how they're going to make their money. And and really, in in the if you're playing the long game, which you should be, every minute counts. You know,
0: is this the kind of thing that you would imagine Congress stepping in and trying to just outright block if the FMCA rule goes through? I mean, there are ways that the legislative uh, body can step in and put a halt to or modify the what the regulatory agencies are doing. Would you imagine that this is? fertile territory for that well it's certainly been talked a lot
1: about and we just saw the hearing you know i think it was last week a big hearing with the the major trucking players that are you know setting out their arguments for speed limiters and we know that there's been bills introduced into congress and tried to append to to appropriations bills that could scuttle this none of those bills really have enough support today i don't feel to make it across the finish line but they are going to inform the political debate without a doubt. I mean, we are going into a presidential election year, so we can expect, you know, the the wheels of the congressional machine to grind to a halt, which means if they do want to pass something on speed limiters, they're going to have to get, you know, creative about adding it to appropriations bills that may or may not pass or other, you know, must pass uh, pieces of legislation. So do I think it's impossible no. Do I think it's probable? No. Do I think that hearing all of this on the Hill could ultimately impact the outcome of the rule? Absolutely. I mean, that's how, that's how the rule and advocacy game is played.
0: Now, speaking of uh, FMCSA, we had a lot of turmoil in the upper echelons of it. We have several acting administrators, and now we've had Robin Hutchin, who I guess for really most of the year now, right? I mean, a ten year is more than a year. Uh, what, what's your verdict on her? You know, I have really appreciated her willingness
1: to come and to to sit in the hot seat to to speak to the industry. I think that's been very good. All of all of the feedback I've heard from uh, FMCSA headquarters staff has been excellent from from that standpoint. So I, I think she's trying hard to do things that are that are very important to her and. You know, congratulations on that. You know, she's working. I should just, uh, issue that, um, notice on domestic violence and domestic abuse, which I think is, you know, going to be really important to, to making our truck stop safer and, and that those sorts of things make sure that those folks that are committing assaults in commercial motor vehicles feel the repercussions for that. I, I think that's important too. Um, certainly interjecting a lot of Biden's, uh, interest in, you know, equality. Uh, and, and environmental support into, into the agenda. She's, she's, you know, been doing her job there from that perspective. So I, I've been happy. I mean, we can tell that it's a democratic administration, you know, so we, we shouldn't be blind to that. But, um, but her leadership, I think has been strong and you can tell that from the pace at which we've been hearing more from FMCSA throughout the year. Right. So. Um seems like they've got their feet back under them and, and I guarantee you they're gonna be pushing very hard in twenty twenty-four to accomplish as much of their agenda as they can before before the election.
0: I, I want to correct myself. I called a Robin Robert, Robin Hushin because I know somebody by that last name, but of course it's Robin Hushinson. Hutch, Hutch yeah. Hutchinson. Correct. Correct. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's talk about again spinning the globe, some other uh some other issues. I'm gonna read some leads from uh the work oh, of boy. my colleague John Gallagher. covers Washington. This is a fairly recent one. Trucking companies should be better protected against unpaid claims that are due them from brokers under a new rule issued by the Federal uh, Motor Carrier Safety Administration. I think this is a growing out of bankruptcies that have left a lot of uh, carriers holding the bag.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're just making sure. And it it is, you know, the rulemaking came out and it's a smaller percentage of the industry, but it's certainly there to make sure that brokers and freight forwarders carry that bond that they must carry in case they, you know, they have a spend down in cash and, and need to wind down and, and help protect those carriers that, like you said, are absolutely holding the bag. So that was the final rule that, that came out in the fall. I think it'll be important.
0: All right, listen to another one. Um, if drivers uh, are to be, fe- drivers have to be federally regulated by hours of service rules, which of course they do, brokers should be required to pay drivers for time lost. Waiting to pick up freight because it ends up making roads le- less safe. Now there's no not a rule proposal on this. This is just a, an argument of a group of owner operators and smaller trucking companies, uh, and FMCSA is kind of planning a study on the effect of detention. Where do you kind of stand on that? What are your What are your thoughts there? Oof, that's a big one too.
1: You know, the detention time study, I think, is going to be very important. And, and we've done it before. We studied it before. And we know that, um, you know, for every additional 15 minutes of of detention time, you know, there's some, some, some safety consequence there. Um, you know, the ultimate question is, what can we do about it? And I think the study that's going to come out of FMCSA will tell us. Um, how bad the problem is, what the impacts of the problem is and among various sectors and that sort of thing. But the real question that folks are trying to answer is, what do we do then? What can FMCSA do? What can Congress do? What can the government generally do with a market problem? Because so, you know, really when it comes down to is who's got the leverage and when to determine how long freight sits on docks and, um, you know, how do we how and should the government play in that? So do I think FMCSA would would regulate, you know, would require that certain people be paid at certain times? I don't really think they're into the pay business, but would Congress do it? Sure. We've seen, you know, we've seen things floated through Congress to say, um, you know, that anything over two hours needs to be paid to the carrier. The carrier needs to pass it through to the to the driver. But, you know, that is that is that focusing on the symptom of the problem? You know the question is how do we fix the problem um it has lots of tails and part of that is that drivers aren't getting their uh you know their full full uh freight on on detention time and and that causes a problem but um you know we need to fix the problem which is detention time which is ultimately a a market-based problem so i think i think we're gonna learn a lot about it and we're gonna learn new ways that the government might be able to help us if they should help us. It's it's an ongoing debate, right? It's gonna it's a three lot li- three year study, so it's a long tail on this one. We'll just have to keep watching.
0: Right, okay, I mean it's it's, an, it's been an issue that's been kicking around for a long time. So yeah. let me throw one more out at you. Um, again, reading from my colleague John Gallagher's work, trailer side guard rule likely delayed until at least October 2024. That was the headlines. DOT's latest regulatory agenda reveals regulators will be taking no action on a costly new safety equipment proposal for almost a year. I mean, I, I seem to re- re- recall writing a story about side guard underride protection as one of my first stories at FreightWaves. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that wow. That was back in 2018. Yeah. So you can see there's not a lot of progress since then.
1: Yeah, uh, certainly, you know, and that, that rule came out and it was such an interesting one to come out because uh, the cost benefit was completely upside down which surprised everybody, you know, the live save versus the cost of equipping these vehicles was just, was just not straight. It's not terribly unusual for an agency to take so long um, to go from NPRM to final um, or in between rulemaking steps. But this one is, this one is particularly difficult for them because they're going to have to find ways to justify, justify that rule. I mean, we could ultimately see them. We recall with the first uh, speed limiter, uh, NPRM in 2016, they didn't justify that rule based on safety either. They justified it based on, um, environmental impact. So if they find it important to continue to move forward on this one, then, um, then we could see, you know, that sort of cost benefit come out of, come out of the agencies. But, um, you know, we'll we'll just have to see. Congress said you need to start working on this, but you also need to study it. Um, so which one should come first and, and how should they both finish up is is an open question. So I'm not too terribly worried about side guards right now.
0: Let me ask two cost questions, kind of like that. What does it cost to equip a truck with a side underride? And then let's go back to earlier in the interview. What does it cost to equip a car with a, excuse me, equip a truck with a speed limiter? Yeah.
1: Well, that's a good question. Speed limiters are already equipped, you know. So trucks have governors; um, they're just not activated, right? So, I, as I understand it, the cost to the carrier from an implementation, for like you know, from a, yeah, an implementation standpoint, would probably not be too onerous. Um, you know, their costs are going to come from lost productivity, obviously. Um, and on the sideguard question, I'm not sure the specific cost of equipping those. I know that there's certainly a difference between those aerodynamic wings and something strong enough to withstand, you know, a 35 mile an hour, you know, T-bone collision by a vehicle. Uh, and that would certainly enhance the cost there, but we're not even sure what the final form of those types of, those types of, uh, technologies would be ultimately, um, cause there'd be a lot of consideration. So I, I'm not sure of the cost. I'm sure, I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure people know it, but And I
0: think some of the opposition on cost is not necessarily the cost of the underwrite equipment, but it's dragging it around, which is more weight, which hurts fuel efficiency. I mean, that's kind of like one of the counter arguments to doing this. That's where the cost is not necessarily putting in the underwrite equipment itself.
1: Yeah. And there's the inspection of that equipment and the inspection of the parts of the trailer behind those guards that are necessary as well. I mean, there's certainly going to be a lot of additional ancillary cost to those, um, you know, and we just have to discern what the cost versus the benefits are and if there's a technological and a a different technological solution to solving the same problem
0: let's ask one last question then um maybe one last maybe we'll have another one but what is the regulatory issue in 2024 that you think right now might be flying a little bit under the radar uh, that you think might become a significant issue next year
1: yeah, so here's how I think 2024 plays out in some ways. Um, if you could look at the regulatory agenda and say, all right, here's the big uh regulatory things to watch. And I, you know, I jotted down a few notes, and obviously we had speed limiters, safety fitness determination rulemaking, which is how FMCSA rates motor carriers. Um an NPRM on on um automated driving systems. But I think what's gonna make a bigger difference in carriers' lives is the things that FMCSA is going to do from a non-regulatory inspec- uh, perspective. So they're really working hard to overhaul the way that they identify le- least less safe motor carriers and, and how they commit to enforcing the rules um, a- a- against those. And I think last year, or this year, I should say, earlier this year, we saw a whole bunch of things that will really inform what th- what's going to happen. We saw the proposed changes to CSA, right? And remember, these are not rules. This is just FMCSA making announcements about how they intend to enforce the rules. So we've got that one. We've got FMCSA's uh, proposed changes to the data queues process. So how do we create a, a more fair data queue process whereby we don't have to live with that final determination that was made by the officer, sometimes made by the officer who wrote the ticket. Instead, we might be able to... Um, to appeal those to a to a higher court so to speak um there's the crash preventability program so fmcsa has that crash preventability determination program whereby motor carriers can contest crashes that fit specific scenarios to have fmcsa deem them as not preventable that should expand next year so that's going to make an impact on carriers and curious csa scores and then finally what fmcsa is doing now from an enforcement perspective with cbsa beginning to test level 8 inspections. And this is going to be an absolute game changer when it happens, but a level 8 inspection is a is a at speed in motion inspection, right? A collection of information. Right now it looks like a sort of a level 3 inspection, right? Driver credential type things are starting to, you know, where they're starting to pilot it this year, meaning they're finding carriers willing to install equipment that can transmit data automatically. To roadside enforcement so that they can eventually use that to determine if there's a a, a violation in place, a violation there, a reason to pull the carrier in. Um, two phases of that are going to happen next year. First, the transmitting data, and then how do we collect the data? How do we um, determine if there's violations in that data? I think that is absolutely, the results of that are going to be very important to the industry, and they're going to change the way that we understand how we need to comply with We have such a big regulatory structure that's been built up over the years. Now, a lot of things that we see are just, hey, how do we manage that? Um, You know, what is that going to look like to motor carriers to comply with those things? And and I think we'll continue to see a lot of changes um, from FMCSA from that
0: perspective. Yeah, trucks are throwing off massive millions of data points. And the more, probably the more ways that the world figures out what to do with them, it's going to be really better off for everybody. I think you might agree with that.
1: Mm -hmm. I do
0: 100%. So I, while you were talking, I did, the, I did the calculation in my head, and we're going to have you back on December 20th next. year. I oh, think perfect. That'll be the last Drilling Deep for 2024, and we'll have lots to talk about. Okay,
1: great. Yeah, it should be interesting. We'll see how the election goes, and boy, yeah, yeah. it'll
0: be a good one. We want to thank P. Sean Gardy of Scope Leaders Transportation Consulting for joining us here today to wrap up the year on Drilling Deep. You know, we've been doing this now. We had about our fourth anniversary a couple of weeks ago, so I never really could have imagined uh, that we'd be at this point after all those years. Uh, my colleague, Tim Dooner, says most podcasts don't last 10 episodes, but we've done a little more than that. So anyway, we want to thank all of you who have watched or listened to Drilling Deep here in 2023. We'll be back the, the first week of January to keep going. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts Freight Waves. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. And if you're watching Sean and I, you're watching it on YouTube. I want to thank South Turt for being our production associate all this year. Great job, South. Thanks for putting up with me when I need to make changes. We want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas, a happy holidays, and a happy new year. See you in 2024.